Welcome to our Net Group Investment Quarterly Briefing, where we profile some of the interesting takeouts from our recent fund manager workshop with our local best of breed managers. To hear the full fund manager presentations or for more information about our funds, visit the Net Group Investments website or access more of our content via LinkedIn, YouTube, or podcast channels. In this episode, we discuss why South African bonds offer value, even during higher for longer interest rates. We analyze the prospects for South African stocks and the influence of state-owned entities on local businesses. Shifting our focus, we compare the economic situations of global superpowers, the US and China, one demonstrating resilience and the other falling short of high expectations. Concluding the episode, we receive a market outlook from a multi-asset portfolio manager. Do bonds currently offer value? Lara Dalmeyer, portfolio manager of Net Group Investments Flexible Income Fund, addresses this query through a scenario analysis. So just from bond valuations, um, if we look at, you know, what do we think about bond valuations, especially in the context that we think that the supply will likely go up, um, we do believe that a lot of this is probably in the price. The market is very much expecting issuance to go up. Um, you know, if you do a thumb suck, uh, 10 year bond valuation, you can take the US 10 year, which is a two and a half. You can add your long term SA inflation expectations, which would be somewhere between five and five and a half percent. You've got to add a small inflation risk premium. And if you back solve, we're trying to see what is the market implying that the country risk premium for South Africa is. And that is somewhere between the range of um, 3.6 and 4.1%, depending which inflation expectation you use. It's probably on the fair side, but I think where you can argue that bonds are cheap is that you're probably seeing value in the US real rate. I think there is value at the US 10-year real, the two and a half. And also we are still using higher inflation expectations than the, than the midpoint of the target range. So you can argue that bonds, especially in this 10-year period, are, are cheap, maybe fair value, but where we really do see value is in the in the extreme kind of steepness of the curve. So your long-end bonds are looking particularly cheap, whereas your shorter-end bonds are probably looking more fair. But then again, there is more risk on the higher-end bonds. They run a lot higher duration. And just from a scenario analysis point of view, in a, in a fund like flexible income where we have a very, we place a lot of emphasis on capital preservation, we have a lot more comfort on the shorter end of the bonds. So we are predominantly invested in the R2030. So this has got about a six-year term left and I just want to present our thinking to you in a bit of a scenario matrix. And we've labeled the slide that a lot has to go wrong for us to be wrong. And why do I say that? So those bonds are currently trading at a yield of about 10.8. So if we buy a bond at 10.8 and it stays there for the next six years until it matures, our annualized total return is 11.1% per annum. Okay, so you're getting inflation easily plus six. Um, Let's put a bit of a negative context on this and let's put a three-year investment horizon. So let's say bond issuance goes up a lot more than the market is thinking. Um, there's a lot more volatility and it's a terrible three-year period. And we see yields spike by an extra 3%, which is a very extreme scenario. Over the next three years, my total return in this bond will still be 8.6% per annum. That is still inflation plus three easily. So 
in the absence of a complete meltdown where South Africa sees much higher inflation, a lot quicker, a lot more consistently, um, we really believe that this is a fantastic instrument to hold in the context of a flexible income fund. Um, and to our point, a lot has to go wrong for us to be wrong in this kind of instrument. So although we think long-end bonds are cheaper, the kind of more conservative um, nature of this bond is is where our preference is at this point in time. And I think you can see that around the scenario analysis. Saul Miller provides his perspective on the domestic equity market in light of recent developments with ESCOM and Transnet. Finally, moving on to South Africa, as, um, as everyone knows, the outlook for SA obviously remains quite uncertain, but valuations of most SA assets are quite cheap. Now, there has been some good news flow uh, recently. If we look at load shedding, how it's progressed from what it looked like six months ago, things certainly are looking up. We're looking at energy availability factors that are sitting in the low 50s now that may well go above 70 towards the end of next year. We're seeing a lot of self-provision from consumers in solar or from businesses, and we have a lot of grid capacity still left in most provinces, which would allow us to introduce renewables. In terms of more recent news flow that we've seen really relates to Transnet. We know that the economy has suffered greatly, whether it's our budget deficit or our tax take. Um, they have both suffered from Transnet's inability to get volumes through to the ports. And that's really what you see in this chart. We're looking at iron ore, coal and freight being under a lot of pressure. But we've seen some very positive changes very recently in the last month or two. We've seen management changes at Transnet and we've seen a very committed statement from the Minister of Public Enterprises to get the private sector involved to fix Transnet. So this could really prove to be quite a boon for our GDP going forward should they get this to work. And I'd say for the first time, um, that's actually looking positive in quite some time. Over here, we have the valuations of the bank sector. So SA is cheap. We've taken quite a lot of our SA exposure via banks. We like banks. First of all, their dividend yields are very generous, as you can see from this chart. But secondly, they are quasi-annuity type businesses. So we think their earnings and their dividend growth is quite defendable and should grow in excess of inflation. While South African state-owned enterprises have faced a lot of negative headlines in recent years, Dwayne Dippender shares some positive developments within Transnet and its potential implications for the South African economy. Another big structural problem in South Africa has been logistics. We know that Transnet is struggling to operate. And over here, you can see a chart of Transnet volumes by millions of tons and how they've dropped off from 2020 down to where they are 2023. And that's overall general freight, coal freight and iron ore all areas under pressure, and that's because of um, Transnet struggling to operate, lack of locomotives, and obviously we know vandalism and cable theft across their network. What the government is doing is very interesting. They're also tackling this uh, sort of um, structural issue, firstly by setting a, up an asset management company that will really house all the state-owned enterprises. So that's a great first step. And, and that asset management company will have private sector board participation, which is great as well. That should help isolate state-owned entities from political interference, step one, and also encourage private sector investment into state-owned entities. 
For, so for instance, in Transnet, we have seen a preferred bidder announced for a JV at the Durban container port. Just keep in mind that container port alone accounts for 46% of South Africa's container traffic, which is very positive. So they can really make quite a large difference there. We've also recently heard that there's preferred bidders being looked at to run the Johannesburg to, to Durban container line. And obviously that's the major general freight line for South Africa. So if we can get preferred bidders and private sector participation there as well, that could really help change the picture you're seeing over here. So this is the next sort of structural change that we're watching quite closely after electricity and what we think can make quite a big difference. Just between electricity and logistics, that can add about 3% to South Africa's GDP. So for every stage of load shedding we see, that takes about 30, 30 basis points of GDP growth or South Africa's GDP numbers. And logistics alone, this impact that you've seen here since 2020, is a cost the economy about 2% of GDP. So just by solving these two, we can get the economy growing at above 2% once again. Nick Balkan provides an overview of why the U.S. economy has displayed resilience. One of the biggest questions we always get is it hasn't come through into the real economy, meaning why has the U.S. economy continued to grow the 10 years up? Things, equity markets are showing volatility. People are losing money on the bond side of things. But why is the U.S. consumer, why is the U.S. economy not falling over? So a large part of it is that most people have their mortgages fixed, meaning that their consumption and their disposable income still is very strong. But what this chart shows you is actually not for the future buyers of mortgages. You can see that the mortgage rate for anyone who's coming into the market right now has jumped substantially. Almost the interest rate has doubled over the period. So you can see it was almost 3.5%. It's heading towards 7.5%, which means that anyone who's buying a new house in the US cannot afford it. So it's going to be a really slow bleed, but actually it's going to be a really big issue for the overall US economy into the future. So I would say I would caution that the the impact is yet to be felt, but absolutely looking forward, it's coming. There's almost a certainty in my mind as the future is never certain, but this is a high probability event that the US economy is going to face many headwinds one of them being the mortgage rate in the US that the, the, the consumers will have to face. China's reopening has been underwhelming to say the least. Saul Miller articulates the path forward for this global superpower. The reopening for China has been quite disappointing and there's obviously a lot of question marks going forward as to what form the stimulus will take. Now, debt growth, and here we're showing you the credit impulse, which is the rate of change of debt in China, has been quite muted and it's not unsurprising. We know that gearing levels in China are very high or debt to GDP levels are very high and the government is trying to move the economy into more of a consumption-based economy and less of an investment one, which is very debt intensive. Over here, what you have is um, imports into China, and we're using this rather than GDP growth because it is a far more reliable series. And what it really highlights is just how muted growth has been in China. And a lot of that really talks to the fact that the Chinese government hasn't managed to inspire consumer confidence yet. And there are a number of fairly obvious reasons for that. We know that property prices are elevated in China, um, so they are unlikely to go up from here. And that obviously weighs on consumer sentiment. A lot of the assets are in property. Secondly, they're quite worried about unemployment. And really that talks to the government's attitude and approach to business, which has been quite unfriendly. 
that has changed a bit. It's better than it was last year, but there's still quite a bit of uncertainty um, as to how they will treat corporates going forward. And obviously, geopolitical tensions and trade wars can weigh on corporates and hence also weigh on unemployment, which is a worry for consumers. There are some levers that are left to pull in China. Interest rates are very low in China, unlike the rest of the world. And so they can increase their debt levels. But given what I said earlier, I think that is reasonably unlikely at this stage. The other thing they can do is they can take debt from the local authorities and move it to the central government, which will free up the local authorities to operate a bit more effectively and invest more, which could also be helpful to the economy. And then the most obvious thing are just to continue to increase the transfers from government to consumers. And that can take many forms. Obvious examples would be lower taxation or improvements in welfare. But really, the key point about China is the outlook does remain a bit murky. It is uncertain as to what foreigners will value Chinese assets at going forward. We like Tencent, which we obviously own via Naspers and Process. So what we have done, given this uncertainty, is we have hedged quite a bit of our position. Nick Balkan presents his rationale for including gold as a risk diversification strategy. Gold is a great way for us to have an insurance policy. Some people say the cost of the insurance has gone up, and I'd agree with that. But absolutely, when tough times come, you absolutely want things that are uncorrelated with the market. If the market goes down, hopefully gold goes up and provides a nice safety net for the overall portfolio. Matthew Tivet gives us his outlook for the remainder of the year. So our outlook, we broadly feel that we're yet to feel the full impact of materially higher real interest rates and quantitative tightening after a period of easy money. So to us, it seems like a risky setup. We think it's a challenging backdrop for global profits in an already high margin environment. We now believe that both SA and for the first time in many, many years, US fixed income offer attractive nominal and real returns. South African equities are cheap, but they aren't that exciting given the lack of growth and the higher cost of capital. We actually think that Chinese equities are becoming very, very interesting. Um, the valuations on some of those businesses are, are extremely low. They have lots of cash on their balance sheets uh, and are looking to allocate capital in a more shareholder-friendly way. And then outside of the large global index stocks, which have driven a lot of the global market's performance over the last while, there are actually a number of interesting, more idiosyncratic opportunities which we will look to take advantage of. So in summary, uh, we've kind of allocated the various asset classes to attractive, fair and expensive. And what's encouraging is that in the attractive bucket, we now have SA bonds, SA equity, US bonds and emerging market equities. So there are lots of areas in which we can find attractive investment opportunities, and at the same time, still manage to build a diversified, robust portfolio. You can access more information about all the fund manager workshops at Net Group Investments website, YouTube, or through our podcast channels on all major platforms. This has been your Net Group Investments quarterly briefing. Make sure to check back at the end of February 2024 for our next edition.